Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. Victorian England, an age of great industry, enlightenment, of learning and of advancement. Equally, it was the age of spiritualism, parapsychology and restrictive social practices. In the chaotic streets of the suburbs of London, the first Victorian urban legend was waiting to be born, beating out Sweeney Todd by a full nine years. Springhill Jack brewed in the fears of an uncertain populace and burst onto the scene, metal claw and all. He stirred a sensation that was far too ripe for anyone to ignore. His was a legend that was overshadowed by only one other when in 1888, Jack the Ripper scribbled his name in blood on the back of a postcard. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome. Season 2 of Dark Histories, episode I don't even know, I think 25, 26, something like that. What I do know is that this is the final episode of season 2 and the final episode of 2018. So we made it all the way throughout the year without skipping a beat and that's something which is awesome. Before we start, I just want to give a quick message I guess to everyone I know not everyone listens to the end, either they turn it off at the end of the narrative or fall asleep, which is totally cool, fine by me, I guess. But I just want to, you know, wish everyone a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. If you don't celebrate that, you know, please take it as it is intended and know that I wish each and every one of you just happiness, health and a wonderful holiday period. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you so much to all the patrons who have supported over the last year. That's been absolutely invaluable, both to keep the show sort of sustained and hopefully to improve it. Thank you to everyone who's ever shared the show with their friends, family or on social media. The show's had like fantastic growth this year and, you know, that's in absolutely no small part to you guys is... In fact, I would say it's majorly to do with you guys. So thank you so much for all of that. And, you know, just thank you so much for listening because at the end of the day, I, you know, I don't do this for the numbers, but at the same time, I probably wouldn't still be making it if no one was listening at the end of the day. So thanks so much for sharing this with me, really. You know, I've really, I really enjoy making it and I really enjoy that you guys enjoy listening to it, I suppose. That was a bit of a long way of saying thanks, wasn't it? But you get my point, I hope. You know, I just, you know, thanks very much for, you know, being here with me to mess about with Dark Histories. It's fantastic fun. Although this is the last episode of season two, I am going to be doing the bonus episode, uh, the Christmas campfire episode. I've had a few stories. They've been fantastic. So if you've got any kind of creepy, weird stories, if you're not sure what the Christmas bonus episode is, go back to last year on the website, check it out. Uh, basically 
you guys can send in your stories and I'll narrate them. Uh, basically kind of like scary real life stories, weird stories, anything a bit fringy, anything you think might fit. So if you want to get those in, get them into me. I don't really have a timeline for it, but it'll probably be around about Christmas that I'll be putting that out. So it would be cool. You know, I'll probably set the deadline around about the 23rd, 24th, something like that. So, you know, if you have some time and you want to write down your story and you want to get it narrated, email it into me, contact at Dark Histories. So, yeah, I just wanted to get that out of the way before we started because so I want to sort of thank everybody. And I say, I know not everyone listens to the end. So, yeah, just thanks very much to everyone for listening and everything that you guys have done for the show. And, you know, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. This week... We're going out hard with the legend of Springhill Jack. In the summer of 1837, England saw Queen Victoria take the throne. Her ascension marked a period of industrial, cultural, political, scientific and military change throughout the country, on one hand opening many doors of opportunity, whilst on the other tightening social restrictions and causing an uneasy fear on the populace. It was a period of severe duality in many respects. What were freedoms for some represented intense pressures for others. London was a city of learning and enlightenment, whilst the rural farms still held on to unswayed and increasingly unpopular beliefs. In the autumn of 1837, just three months after Queen Victoria's ascension to the throne, rumours of strange appearances began circulating throughout South London and South East England. The nights were drawing in as the evenings grew darker and colder as summer faded into a distant memory. In September on the southwest edge of the city of London in the district of Barnes, chatter was quietly filling the streets and taverns of a series of ghoulish sightings. Mysterious, ghostly images of a pale white bull that had been stalking women. A few miles up the road, to the northeast of Barnes, lie the district of East Sheen and similar accounts were also circulating there. In East Sheens, the visage was that of a ghostly bear, but its nature and intent appeared to contain many similarities. Notably, the ghostly bear of East Sheens was appearing in the dark evenings, stalking and attacking women, leaving many suffering most severely from fright. Whilst this ghost or apparition bore the shape of a wild animal, speculation flew of its true nature. As the stories spread, so too did the form alter from bull to bear to simply unearthly visitant. Throughout Richmond, people spoke of their sightings or of how their neighbour's daughter's friends had seen and suffered at the feet of the ghost. And by the time rumours of sightings began flooding across the fields of suburban Ham and Petersham, it was well known that the ghost was in fact an imp or evil one. The sightings and stories spread further north still and as they edged closer to the city of London, the visage grew in detail and colour. By the time it had crossed north of the Thames River, sightings of an earthly warrior clad in armour of polished brass with spring shoes and large claw gloves emerged. In John's Wood, a similar armour-clad apparition appeared, this time with the ability to shapeshift. At times he was clad in armour, whilst others he was dressed as a bear. As rumour tore through the suburban fringes of the City of London throughout the winter of 1837 and the turn of the year, 
speculation as to the ghost's origins began to blossom. Whilst many believed it to be of some supernatural origin, not all were convinced. The first newspaper entry linked with Spring Hill Jack came on the 28th of December 1837 and tied the antics of the apparition to a gang of pranksters. Some scoundrel, disguised in a bearskin and wearing spring shoes, has been jumping to and fro before foot passengers in the neighbourhood of Lewisham and has in one or two instances greatly alarmed females. This feat, it is said, is to decide a wager he having undertaken to play of these freaks for a number of nights in nine different parishes without being apprehended. A sharp lookout, however, is being kept after him and there is little doubt he will be the loser. He has been named Steel Jack by the inhabitants of Lewisham, many of whom are afraid to leave their homes after dark. This report signalled two important milestones for the legend of Spring Hill Jack. Firstly, it marked the transition from oral to written. Until now, the apparitions were merely spoken of and propagated in gossip and rumour. Secondly, the moniker of Steel Jack attempted to name the apparition as an individual. Perhaps it lacked in originality and failed to ignite imaginations. Jack, after all, was simply the common name for an unknown man, a commoner and later a trickster or prankster. Whatever the reason, it failed to stick. This article did, however, pave the way for a wider level of recognition that was soon to come. On January the 8th, 1838, just over a week after the first report of Steel Jack hit the papers, and as the festivities of the New Year waned, the City Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cohen, made a public address concerning a letter he had received from a concerned member of the public, signing off only as a Peckham resident. To the Right Honourable the Lord Mayor, My Lord, the writer presumes that your Lordship will kindly overlook the liberty he has taken in addressing a few lines on a subject which within the last few weeks has caused much alarming sensation in the neighbouring villages within three or four miles of London. It appears that some individuals, of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, name as yet unknown, that he does not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear and a devil, and moreover, that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses. At one house, he rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse than brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a spectre clad most perfectly. The consequences was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses. But on seeing any man, screams out most violently, Take him away! There are two ladies, which your lordship will regret to hear, who have husbands and children, and who are not expected to recover, but likely to become burdens to their families. For fear that your lordship might imagine that the writer exaggerates, he will refrain from mentioning other cases, if anything more melancholy than those he has already stated. This affair has been going on for quite some time, and strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer is very unwilling to be unjust to any man, but he has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their fingers' ends, but through interested motives, are induced to remain silent. 
It is, however, high time that such a detestable nuisance should be put a stop to, and the writer feels assured that your lordship, as the Chief Magistrate of London, will take great pleasure in exerting your power to bring the villain to justice. Hoping your lordship will pardon the liberty I have taken in writing, I remain your lordship's most humble servant, a resident of Peckham. A second gentleman further explained how a ghost or devil had been terrifying people around the suburban boroughs, and at one point had torn a blacksmith's flesh with iron claws, and on another occasion tore clothes from the backs of females. These accounts mirrored other recent reports, whereby a man in polished steel armour and red shoes attacked a carpenter named Jones, who had been jumped on in the cutthroat lane. Jones, however, who was described as a powerful man, grappled with the attacker who tore his clothes into ribbons, casting them to the wind, and then fled. Whoever, or whatever the attacker was, he was apparently becoming more violent. Despite the letter from the resident of Peckham, which he remarked was written in a beautiful hand, Mayor Cohen appeared to remain sceptical and was noted as observing that, as our friends on the other side of the Atlantic were in the habit of saying, it was extraordinary if true. He then went on to suggest that the handwriting suggested it was that of a woman, so perhaps he followed up, she was a victim of the attacker herself who had lost her senses. Using the excuse that the attacks were not within the boundaries of the City of London, he gently dodged responsibility, but suggested, tongue firmly in cheek, that he hoped she would do him the favour of a call, and he would have an opportunity of getting from her such a description of the demon as would enable him to catch him. If the Lord Mayor was not to take it seriously, it was a matter of misjudgment that the general population would do the same. By the 11th of January, Reports of several communications to the mayor were published in an article headlined simply, The Ghost Story. One such letter sent to the mayor came from a Mr Thomas Lott, who speculated that the prankster was in fact a thief, and went on to say, It is stated that some individual drives about with a livery servant in a cab, and throwing off a cloak, appears in those frightful forms, and is to win a wager by the joke. I shall shortly remove my family from my town residence to that above state, where if I catch Mr Ghost on any part of my premises, I shall administer that to his substantial part, that if he ever reappears, it shall be only his aerial essence, or as a ghost in fact. Another came from an unnamed magistrate who recounted the details of an attack in Hammersmith on the wife of a decent tradesman. At first I, with your lordship, thought this visitation in the 19th century so near the metropolis and with such a well-organised police as we now have, too absurd for belief, but on further inquiry I ascertained that several young women had really been frightened into fits, dangerous fits, and that some of them had been severely wounded by a sort of claw the miscreant wore in his hands. I expressed my surprise that the attention of the police had not been called to this nuisance. My informant assured me that repeatedly their vigilance had been aroused on the subject, but the fellow or fellows had been adroit enough to elude capture. Neatly summing up the public's feeling on the matter of both the attacker and the mayor's attitude towards his capture in his public address, an inhabitant of Stockwell wrote, The letter you received a few days ago respecting some person who makes it his delight to frighten the peaceable inhabitants of the suburbs of the metropolis is not without foundation. He has frightened several persons in Stockwell, Brixton, Camberwell and Vauxhall and has caused the death of several 
and many instances can be proved of his frightening people into fits, hoping you will not think lightly of this matter. And on and on. In total, six letters were printed in the report, ranging from allegations of murder, pranksters, thieves, and of the citizens' response, from threats of hunting the ghosts for themselves, to fear keeping women and children locked in their houses. One rather scathing letter, signed off by the initials JC, ends, There ought to be a stop put to this, but the police, I am afraid, are frightened at him also. The mayor may have thought it wise to play down the initial letter concerning the attacks, but in doing so, by addressing it publicly, he instead gave the oral accounts a legitimacy they had not benefited from in the past. By simply acknowledging the rumours and talk, the mayor had lent his title and all the weight that that brings to the story. At the same time, the details of the attacker were becoming wilder by the day, and in the same report, a description was given of a figure clad in a bearskin, which upon being drawn aside, exhibited a human body in a suit of mail, and with a long horn, the emblem of the King of Hell himself. Whilst it seems as if the papers and the reports themselves could not quite decide if the attacks were being carried out by a trickster or the devil, it mattered little, and was a duality that would pay off in the long term. One grounded the fear of attack in a very real possibility, whilst the other gave the story a supernatural edge that would ignite the imaginations of the public for decades to come. While still being referred to simply as the ghost or several other supernatural variants, on the 13th of January the press ran a story concerning the attacks headlined Spring Jack, which summarised the oral accounts across the various boroughs of Greater London, including a curious rumour that children had seen him in the Royal Palace dancing by the moonlight, before scaling the walls and disappearing in the direction of the churchyard. This piece was unapologetic in its standpoint, declaring that their reporter had met with many supposed victims of attacks. The stories were in everybody's mouths, yet no person who had actually seen the ghost could be found. He was directed to many persons who were named as having been injured by the alleged ghost, but on his speaking to them, they denied all knowledge of it but directing him to other persons whom they'd heard had been ill-treated, but with them he met no better success. Finally, the piece wrapped it up neatly by declaring it, without question, a simple hoax. Meanwhile, reports continued to roll in, in a manner that had become close to a frenzy. The attacker appeared to be darting across London from suburb to suburb, now having been surrounded in blue flame or at times carrying a lantern. The story that the attacker was a prankster undertaking his wicked deeds for a wager was extended, with the group involved called out as being connected with high families, and that the wager stood to profit the winner a sum of £500, with success resting on his ability to ruin the lives of no less than 30 human beings. This list had to include 8 old bachelors, 10 old maids, 6 lady maids, and as many servant girls as possible. It might come as no surprise to those familiar with the British tabloids that this story was printed in The Sun, a paper that has, apparently, not held a shred of credibility for well over a hundred years, and the wager theory is backed by no cited evidence whatsoever. One week later, on the 20th of January, the Penny Satirist, a weekly paper renowned for its sensation and attraction to libel suits, took the earlier Spring Jack headline one step further, and dubbed the attacker Spring Hill Jack. 
whilst it might have aimed to rubbish the reports, the original article dated from the 13th of January instead went some way to ensuring the attacker a new level of immortality. Over the coming weeks, there were a few deviations in reports, one calling him Long-Heeled Jack, but as the end of February approached, one account would soon cement the name of Spring-Heeled Jack for good. February of 1838 brought about two more relatively important details for the legend of Spring-Heeled Jack. Firstly, there were three documented attacks within the city of London limits. The mayor's earlier hand-waving would no longer fly, and his dodging of responsibility due to attacks taking place outside the remit of the city police force forced his hand into acting upon the matter. Secondly, was an attack on the night of Tuesday, February the 20th, on a young woman named Jane Alsop. This attack stood out chiefly for two reasons. First, it was carried out on a respectable, middle-class family, and secondly, they broke tradition of the usually close-lipped, respectable, middle-class family by giving a full testimony to Mr Hardwick, the Chief Magistrate, and Mr Norton, the Investigating Magistrate, in a court at the Lambeth Street Police Station. Yesterday, Mr Alsop, a gentleman of considerable property, residing at Bear Blue Cottage in Bear Bine Lane, a very lonely spot between the villages of Bow and Old Ford, accompanied by his three daughters, waited upon Mr Hardwick, and gave the following particulars of an outrage committed on one of them. Miss Jane Alsop, a young lady 18 years of age, stated that, at about a quarter to nine o'clock of the preceding night, she heard a violent ringing at the gate in front of the house, and on going to the door to see what was the matter, she saw a man standing outside, of whom she inquired what was the matter, and requested he would not ring so loud. The person instantly replied that he was a policeman, and he said, for God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught spring Jack out here in the lane. She returned into the house and bought a candle and handed it to the person, who appeared enveloped in a large cloak, and whom at first she really believed to be a policeman. The instant she had done so, however, he threw off his outer garment, and applying the lighted candle to his breast, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flame from his mouth and his eyes resembled red balls of fire. From the hasty glance which her fright enabled her to get at his person, she observed that he wore a large helmet, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, appeared to her to resemble white oilskin. Without uttering a sentence, he darted at and catching her, partly by her dress and the back part of her neck, placed her hand under one of his, and commenced tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were of some metallic substance. She screamed out as loud as she could for assistance, and by considerable exertion got away from him and ran towards the house to get in. Her assailant, however, followed her and caught her on the steps leading to the hall door, when he again used considerable violence, tore her neck and arms with his claws, as well as a quantity of hair from her head. But she was at length rescued from his grasp by one of her sisters. Miss Alsop added that she had sustained and was then in extreme pain both from the injury done to her arm and the wounds and scratches inflicted by the miscreant about her shoulders and neck by his claws or fangs. Miss Mary Alsop, a younger sister, said that on hearing the screams of her sister Jane, she went to the door and saw a figure, as above described, ill-using her sister. She was so alarmed at his appearance that she was afraid to approach or render any assistance. 
Immediately following the attack, Mr. Allsop offered a reward of 10 guineas for information leading to an arrest, and this was bumped up by local Member of Parliament, Sir Edward Codrington, who offered a further £5. Superintendent Young, an inspector guard from the police's K Division, a territorial subdivision of the Metropolitan Police, alongside James Lee, a policeman for Lambeth Street, carried out parallel investigations into the attack. On the 22nd of February, James Lee reported to magistrates that various attacks on both women and men had been taking place across the district for the previous month by a man wearing a Spanish cape and occasionally carrying a lantern. He believed the attacker to be a lone wolf rather than any gang of pranksters and commented on the fact that he fully believed the testimonies of the Allsop family, though all three officers agreed that the description of the attacker had been much mistaken due to her fright. He also made specific note of the fact that the attacks had all been carried out between 8pm and 9pm, the precise time the active officers changed shift. He ended his report by stating that he did not think it likely that the attacker would strike in the same neighbourhood for some time to come. His other work on the investigation might have been well and good, but on this point he was wrong. On the 25th of February, whilst the police were still investigating the attacks on Jane Allsop, Springhill Jack struck once more. He was at this point a wanted man with a price on his head, and many locals of the Allsop family were on the case. One, a most respectable gentleman holding a high position in the Bank of England, had high hopes that he would be able to produce the miscreants in questions of the police in just a day or two. That Sunday night, however, Springhill Jack made his presence known once more when he knocked at the door of Mr Ashworth of 2 Turner Street at around 8pm, a stone's throw from the Allsops. This time the door was opened by the house's young servant boy who screamed loud enough to frighten off the attacker after he had cast aside his cape, but escaping without causing any harm. Springhill Jack once again proved the authorities wrong with great aplomb when he attacked Lucy Scales and her sister as they walked home from their brother's house in Green Dragon Alley on the 28th of February just three days after the attack in Turner Street and eight days after the Allsop attack. It was 8.30pm when 18-year-old Lucy and her sister left the home of her brother, a butcher who lived in Limehouse, London. They were walking the short distance to Weeks Place where they resided and as they entered the alleyway they noticed a person who they first mistook for a woman taking the strange headgear they were wearing as a bonnet of some kind. As they drew closer, the true picture opened up before them. She described the person to be of tall, thin and gentlemanly appearance, enveloped in a large cloak and carrying a bullseye, similar to those in the possession of the police. On her sister, who was a little before her coming up to the person, he threw open his cloak, exhibited the lamp and puffed a quantity of flame from his mouth into the face of his sister, who instantly dropped and such was the effect of the light upon her eyes that she had to cover them with her hands for a minute or two. When she sent to the assistance of her sister, she also stated that the individual did not utter a word, nor did he attempt to lay hands upon them, but walked away in an instant. The sister's brother had heard their screams for help and ran down the alley, but upon meeting them, he found only Lucy laying on the floor, apparently in fits. His second sister was crouched at her side, the alleyway itself was entirely empty otherwise. A surgeon, Charles Pritchell, passed a written statement to police stating that he had visited Lucy Scales on the night of the attack and found her 
suffering from hysterics and great agitation, in all probability the result of fright. The same day, Inspector Lee, still working on the Allsop case, commented on a demonstration he had seen that very morning at a London hospital that utilised sulphur, spirits of wine and another mystery ingredient that police saw fit not to publish that could be blown down a glass pipe to produce a flame. After seeing the demonstration, he seemed perfectly satisfied that this was more than likely the technique used by Jack in his attacks. In the end, the case of Lucy Scales was overshadowed by the Allsop investigation in the press. The lack of witnesses played a part in this, though one might presume class also played a role, despite the papers calling Mr Scales a respectable butcher. The most interesting observation following the attack came from Judge Hardwick, who concluded that all the attacks were from a single individual, rather than a group or gang of pranksters. On the 28th of February, the same day as the Lucy Scales attack, the inquiry into the Allsop case took place in the Lambeth Street Police Station courts. Crowds queued down the street, such was the interest now gathering for the story of Spring Hill Jack. It wasn't only the conclusions to the investigations that garnered so much public attention, but the news that the investigative police were to present two men apparently linked to the attacks as suspects. One was a carpenter known as Mr Milbank, and the second a master bricklayer named Mr Payne. Payne and Milbank had been out shooting together during the day of the attack, and after had spent the evening drinking in the White Hart pub. Milbank had got so drunk, in fact, that his entire defence rested on the point that he was entirely unconscious for his return home, so drunk that he had no recollection of the night's events. A further witness, a wheelwright named James Clark, who saw the pair in the street after the attack, identified them as the men and claimed that they had grabbed him and said, what do you think of Spring Hill Jack now? Though Mr Payne denied the accusation and said they were there because they had heard screams and gone to help, the hearing concluded that Payne and Milbank had caused the highest suspicion and called for further proceedings the following Friday. Curiously, a large point was made concerning the fact that all investigating parties were at a loss as to how the attacker could have enveloped himself in a supernatural blue flame. And Mr Stock, the county magistrate, said that independent of his own knowledge of chemistry, he had since made inquiries to other independent chemists. His conclusion was that he did not think that a drunken man would be able to produce such a light about his person as that described. On Friday, the inquiry continued. Mr Milbank continued his solid defence that he was so blind drunk that he could not remember anything of the evening. However, there was a new witness, Mr Richardson, a shoemaker who was also in the street on the night of the attack, and he could not positively identify Milbank as the man he saw. The inquiry concluded with the magistrates deciding that neither Payne nor Milbank were the men guilty of carrying out the attack, but noted that the offence being so serious, they would endeavour to investigate it fully. Over the following weeks, there were numerous appearances of Spring Hill Jack figure throughout London. However, many were actually caught and later found to be hoaxers playing on the media frenzy. Some were men dressed in white sheets scaring children, whilst others, like Charles Grenville, were described to be of weak mind but perfectly harmless, and they were given a warning to quit their antics and sent on their way. The narrative that formed around these jokers was one of imitation. Whilst those caught were always considered to be mortal pranksters, 
the real Spring Hill Jack was always told to be elsewhere, carrying on his supernatural antics for real. As the winter thawed and the spring of 1838 fell, Spring Hill Jack began spreading his wings outside of London, and by the end of May he was seen right across the southeast, from the city of London right down to the coast. He even showed up in my very own city of Brighton in one of the first reports outside of the city. It was a tale that harkened back to the earlier reports as he was seen in the shape of a bear, an apparition which scared a local gardener before scaling a wall and making his escape. By June, his theatrics were being reported nationwide. This may have had the effect of greatly amplifying his fame throughout the country, but it also stretched the credulity that it was a singular individual, a point that was not missed by some elements of the press. On the 2nd of June, the Bristol Mercury printed a piece that stated, Spring Hill Jack, having left London in its neighbourhood, is now visiting the more distant parts of the country. This mischievous personage seems endowed with ubiquity, for, according to the county press, he was last week, at the same time, in most of the boroughs, villages and cities in England. With rumours of his attacks gaining more localised, nationwide press attention, Spring Hill Jack conversely slowly began fading from the pages of newspapers on a regular basis. No longer as sensationalist as it once was, between the 1840s and 1860s, the legend of Spring Hill Jack hit a steady cycle of oral rumour interspersed with brief episodes of press coverage, helping to fuel the rumours and simultaneously keeping Spring Hill Jack alive in the imaginations of the public. In this period, he was seen and had brief reports through all major cities and boroughs of England. In 1841, he attacked a young woman in Camden, London, attacking them in the most shameful and indelicate manner, taking indecent liberties. One of the more salient points of the article being that it bore a direct, at least for the Victorians, reference to sexual assault, a subject we'll broach a little later. In the early years of the 1840s, Spring Hill Jack once again added characteristics to his supernatural arsenal. In one report, he was seen tossing fire into the streets from his hands as he escaped into a graveyard, chased by police, and in a second, he burst down a door to a family home, terrifying the inhabitants inside. When he made his escape, he presumably leapt onto the roof of the house from the ground, as the family reported hearing his footsteps as he dashed away, dumping across the ceiling. In 1842, police in Suffolk succeeded in capturing Spring Hill Jack, but via yet another newly acquired supernatural ability, he vanished entirely from his holding cell. The story was printed in the Ipswich Journal and told of the escape. Not content with his place of rest, Jack, whose knowledge of his profession here proved of great avail to him, soon contrived to make his escape and has not since been heard of. It is supposed he has fled to Naples. Some suppose that by some chemical process, Jack was converted into a spirit and so managed to make his escape. In November of 1945, Jack was once again in London and this time he was under fire for carrying out a murder in the capital. He breathed fire into the face of a prostitute named Maria Davis then threw her from a bridge into the River Thames. This report appears to have little basis in fact, however, and could very easily have been complete fabrication, as all reports appear to be little more than the printing of an oral rumour. 
1850, Springhill Jack began leaving behind a scent trail of sulphurous brimstone as he made his getaways from Bermuda's police. And in one report in Wakefield, he was described as a goblin trotting around at unearthly speed, walking on cloven hooves. He was eventually forced to flee after a local priest sprinkled plenteous holy water around the scene of his attacks. The 1860s saw Springhill Jack hit popular entertainment with a stage play at the London Grecian Theatre, bearing his namesake, a trend that continued in 1868 when portrayed as a perverse Victorian version of Batman. In this rendition, titled The Terror of London, Springhill Jack was portrayed as a figure embracing the lovable rogue stereotype with a sense of vigilante justice. The 1870s saw a brief revival in attacks across the country. Jack was seen and reported as carrying out attacks as far north as Edinburgh, where as a ghostly apparition, he bounded the canal at a leap in his escape from the police. In 1877, he carried out a sustained attack on British military posts, stalking lonely sentries carrying out their nightly watches. This was so ubiquitous that the men began loading live ammunition in their rifles, shooting freely towards the apparitions but never striking. One report in August told of how he nearly frightened a sentry out of his wits by slapping his face with his death-like hand before disappearing, hopping and bounding into the mist. These attacks promptly ended, however, after one sentry finally caught Jack, skewering his leg on his bayonet, only to find out that it was another member of his regiment in disguise. Still, these false reports would not stop popular entertainment from utilising Jack's name, and in 1878, they saw him as the main character in a 40-part serial fiction in the penny dreadful The Boys Standard. The 1880s saw a noticeable shift in press coverage and general narrative towards Springhill Jack. Once viewed as a terrifying spirit, a supernatural demon, or a flesh and blood embodiment of chaos, he was now assumed widely as a mere prankster, and not a glamorous one at that. In 1881, the Illustrated Police News, in the same edition that ran with an illustration of the Garstang Ghost on the front cover, mentioned Springhill Jack briefly. Some years ago, a Spring-Heeled Jack, the most vulgar and unromantic ghost imaginable, took to playing pranks in one quarter of London to the great alarm of its feminine inhabitants. But its success brought into the field a crowd of rivals who were speedily found out and the originator of the deception retired from business in disgust. This was followed by a piece in the Daily News that merely called Jack a mere vulgar ruffian fond of horseplay. Whilst all this negative press and dismissal attempted to steer the narrative in the direction of the absurd, or to frame Jack as a lower form of base criminality, his legend did continue to an extent within Wales, where he terrified a town to such a degree that the local colliers would not walk to work alone. In 1888, however, another Jack hit the scene. This monster would overshadow almost all other Victorian tales of terror right up until today. A murderer was hitting the dark alleyways of Whitechapel, killing prostitutes with abandon, whilst slipping from the grasp of the authorities under the cover of shaded alleyways. Jack the Ripper was the new kid on the block, and his sensationalist popular appeal was second to none. Slowly, Springhill Jack took the back seat in the imaginations of the people. 
1904, he made his last large contribution to the press in England when he carried out an attack in Everton. In a report that bordered on prophecy, he was seen to jump clean over the terrace houses from Stitt High Street to Haig Street and then hop back across the slate roofs to Salisbury Street, after which he was never seen again. As much as it would be poetic to end the story of Springhill Jack there, it was not quite to be. Going out with a prolonged whimper rather than a bang, he showed up from time to time in reports right up until the Second World War, though never was it on a level quite the same as his Victorian heyday, and rather than spoken of as an exact individual entity, he was more often referred to only by name as a description of a certain type of prank attack. His end was a slow descent into the minds of the people until eventually he fell from the narrative entirely, cemented as a legend but far away from the true fears of everyday people. So just what was Springhill Jack? Was he merely a mortal man or a demon? A lovable anti-establishment rogue or a base criminal? There is much evidence to suggest he was all and none at the same time and it's precisely these qualities that allowed his legend to persist for so long and with such potency. Springhill Jack embodied characteristics of the supernatural, whilst also remaining entirely grounded in common criminality. He blurred the lines between reality and fiction. As his legend continued, he appropriated new, terrifying supernatural powers, whilst his continued prankster narrative always kept him in the realms of a distinct possibility. Even the most sceptical could not turn a blind eye to the fact that if he was not spirit, he could just easily be a flesh and blood miscreant, a feature which kept Springhill Jack forever in the backs of the minds of many. In the early days, he showed signs of being ghost, beast man, imps and even the devil, never one but very possibly all, and as laws tightened and science advanced, enlightenment brought alongside it and appealed to older beliefs. Spiritualism boomed, and the past of supernaturalism and parapsychology promised excitement within the realms of the inexplicable. The same enlightenment too freed the concept of the devil from the archaic biblical context, allowing new interpretations to imagine him anew, and with these new conceptualizations, he became more amorphous. To take on forms of figures such as Springhill Jack held a certain level of appeal, fueled by romanticism and gothic horror. Previous to Jack, in the 1820s, the Newgate novel had seen the boom of the romanticisation of the lovable rogue type, a criminal against authority making fools of police, glamorising criminals like Jack Shepard and Dick Turpin. Largely seen as a reaction to the tightening laws that were expanded and upheld throughout the Victorian era, Springhill Jack held a popular appeal along the same vein. Likewise, in his later 19th century revival, he can easily be seen as a figure in gothic horror, a genre that had now been distilled throughout fiction from literature to penny dreadfuls. Springhill Jack stalked in the shadows of the urban underworld, escaping into the dark from whence he came. His legend has more than a little to do with his name too. Anchored by the moniker of Springhill Jack, he was thus allowed the ability to shapeshift between bear, demon, imp and human whilst retaining a coherent narrative as an individual. His was a story that was both open to interpretation and embellishment, whilst retaining a blurred line between fiction and reality. All of these qualities ensured his legend would continue to evolve and appeal across decades and generations. 
and what of his attacks? Whilst many were seen as harmless pranks, many caused physical and very real harm on the victims. Once again, within the attacks we see a duality which blurred the lines between fantastical and a very real threat, leaving no one to feel settled or comfortable with the possibility of a nocturnal meeting. In opposition to the idea of a prankster, there are possibilities that cast a darker picture of the attacks. One retrospective theory is that many of the females attacked were frightened into fits, or that these fits were perhaps a subtle evasion of having to publicly explain rape or sexual assault. In an age where women were not to speak of sex in public, whether it be consensual or not, the concept of falling into a fit or being frightened into a stupor can be viewed as a way for the victim to either allude to the fact or to dodge it altogether. This was also a time when women were often at the sharp end of victim blaming. The streets were dangerous places and a woman out alone at night, especially one in an alleyway or similar shady, slightly less well-to-do area, would certainly have had her character questioned. Those were the territories of men, drunks and prostitutes. When viewed through this lens, the attacks by Springhill Jack moved swiftly away from a roguelike, anti-establishment character to something entirely unlovable. In short, Springhill Jack was the embodiment of many fears, real, social and imagined. He was the embodiment of the turmoil felt by many, a product of gossip, surveillance culture, increasingly restrictive laws, lifestyles and belief systems. He was precisely as real as the next story, either read in print or spoken of in pubs across the country. A deep untrust of the metropolis drew him into the cities, whilst a population in the rural counties who still maintained old beliefs helped to propagate him nationwide in tale and song. I came from pandemonium. If they lay me, I'll come back. Meanwhile, around the town I'll jump. Spring Hill Jack. Spring Hill Jack, ladies and gentlemen, fantastic story, loved it, didn't know anything about it before I started, but it was, you know, fantastic for me, because I love all these social and cultural historical things, so we'll go into that a little bit after these short adverts. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Studio Headphones. For anyone paying attention, we've been sponsored by Studio before, and at that time I talked about the over-the-ear model called the Regents. I quite liked them, and I wrote a long review on my blog because I wanted to be transparent about the things that we're advertising on the show. But the long and the short of it were that they were really not bad headphones at all, 
and I actually still use them almost daily. For this sponsorship, I got to test the in-ear model called the Tray. These ones are kind of amusingly aimed at people with an active lifestyle, which is, yeah, far from me. But basically they're sweat proof and they're made out of like really soft kind of silicone rubber. They have wing tips that fit inside of your earlobes so that you can keep them secure whilst doing all the things that you fit people do. They're Bluetooth so you're completely wireless, have over nine hours of battery life and have built in controls for music and a microphone to take calls and control Siri and all your voice apps. Okay, so that's kind of hit all the bullet points from the company spiel. It's time for a bit of, you know, real talk. But I, I actually found that I really liked them. Um, and I don't mean to sound surprised by that. It's just that it's been a little while since I've tried any buds at all. Um, I've been using a lot of over-ear headphones. You know, I was quite shocked uh, by how good the sound quality was. I wasn't really expecting much. And not only that, but I think they're actually more of an all-rounder than the Regents models, uh, where the Regents, they kind of lacked a little in bass, but they excelled really well at sort of listening to podcasts and jazz. I think the Trey are really good sort of all-round headphones. I think they have some really good heft in the low end and they sound really good across the entire audio spectrum. Uh, the Bluetooth range is not quite as good as the Regents, but that said, I can still walk about probably around 20 to 30 feet away from my phone so it's probably more than you'll need you know it's probably more than most users are ever going to need and you know they look good which ties in with their whole kind of Scandinavian vibe that they have going on they come with a genuine leather carry pouch and yeah they seem like a good price for a decent set of earbuds to me so you know what makes them an even better deal right is if you do decide to splash out on some new bluetooth headphones you head over to studio.com and at the checkout, use the code DARKHISTORIES15, and that's all one word, DARKHISTORIES15, and that will net you a cool 15% off and free worldwide shipping. And if that's not enough, they have an offer for a free gift box until the end of December. So that's studio.com, enter code DARKHISTORIES15 at checkout. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show, and by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. Welcome back. Embarrassingly enough, I, I didn't really know much about Springhill Jack before I started this. I'd heard the name and sort of roughly knew the story, but very roughly but it had been something that had been requested by people for a really long time now and, a, and quite a lot of people had requested it. And I always wanted to do it, but I always knew that if I was going to do it, I needed it was going to be some serious research because it's been done a few times before. There's no point for me to kind of just retread what everyone else has said about it. I knew that I had to come at it from my own 
kind of dark history's personal perspective of how I approach things. So, you know, and, and do it serious and proper. So I hope I achieved that. And yeah, I just thought, why not finish the season on it? Finish big, right? So I'm not really sure what to say of it. I mean, for me personally, I don't think that it was really... Obviously, I think he was supernatural. I think he was a culmination of a lot of things. Um, I think he's easily explained sort of culturally and through the social history. I think I sort of touched on it in the in the episode there. I, I sort of tried to cover it without getting too heavy because, I mean, this kind of stuff is, is really like my bread and butter. I love this kind of stuff. I, you know, I could read this for days. So I sort of wanted to sort of just touch on it without getting into the genders of social spaces and things like that, which are possibly a bit heavy. But if you, you know, I assume we're probably going to talk about this a little bit in the next live stream, which I'm not sure when that's going to be. So if you want to kind of get involved in that conversation, I'm sure we'll probably go down those roads a bit more then. But, you know, I thought it was fascinating. And the best thing ever was the guy who in court said that after consulting with chemists, he does not think a drunk man would be able to produce the light about his person. But does he think a sober man would? So if you're sober, you you can create a blue supernatural light about your person, can you? I thought that was quite funny. But, But otherwise, yeah, I thought really it was kind of a culmination of probably a lot of copycats sort of playing tricks or sort of being criminals basically or rapists as well I think there was probably a fair few of them um, like I sort of alluded like you never really know that it was sexual assault because in Victorian society women weren't keen to mention that and and I sort of touched again and again I sort of just touched on that in the episode but that goes quite deep that um, obviously I covered some of the stuff but there's other things as well like the fact that he was a supernatural being and that the women were kind of trying very hard to get away from this supernatural being that they couldn't get away from is almost like a justification for them being raped because otherwise they would be looked down upon essentially um, which is you know horrible and terrifying but I suppose those were the days, you know, that that those were the times. Um, it, it's, you know, it's a disturbing thought, really. I mean, of course, you still see it today, like there's victim blaming and such, like the classic, you know, she was, look at the way she was dressed is, is kind of our version of this, I guess, which is, you know, equally as disgusting. But all of this stuff I thought was really interesting. I, I think he was probably a real man. I sort of lost my train of thought to some extent. It's, you know, it's the end of the season. It's coming up to Christmas. I'm just talking waffle. But yeah, no, I thought he was probably a real man. Um, I think he was a culmination of either rumours that weren't real, sort of the stories of, oh, it happened to my sister's sister's friend or whatever. And at the same time, I think he probably did attack people and there were reports and stories that were real and he was just a man dressed up for whatever purpose, you know, whatever, if he wanted to do sort of serious harm or or what as was the case of many people that got caught they were just kind of playing sort of misguided pranks we'd have to say it was fairly misguided especially the army one the military one rather i mean that was pretty misguided you would think if that was all a prank 
when they started loading live ammunition into their guns, they might have thought to stop that. But it wasn't until the guy got bayoneted in the leg that they went, mm, yeah, perhaps we shouldn't do this anymore. So that was quite quite fascinating. Um, but yeah, no, I think, you know, that's probably Spring Hill Jack as a, as a kind of whole. I think he was a combination of rumours that turned into copycats, that turned into, you know, basically people copycatting for all manner of reasons. I thought it was interesting, though. So it was really interesting. You know, I found it really enjoyable going through, like, all these old papers, uh, especially, like, Victorian culture and um, the social history of the Victorian era. So, you know, for me, I, I, I was well in this. So I think I'm probably going to leave that there. I kind of concluded and said everything I wanted to say for the most part, actually, in the episode this week. Sometimes I leave out the kind of conclusions or the questions to sort of put into this part afterwards. But in this case, I think I, I pretty much broached everything that I wanted to broach in the episode to a degree. So, yeah, I think I'm going to leave that there. And like I said, right at the start, I just want to wish everyone a really Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. If you want to review the show over Christmas, that'd be amazing. If you want to share it, that'd be amazing. If you want to support, that would be amazing. Just go to darkhistories.com. You'll find everything there. All the social links, the Patreon, all the ways that you can support. I'm more or less a one-man band. I make everything by myself. So any support that you can give, whether it be you know financial through the Patreon or just sharing it on social media is amazing. So yeah, if anyone wants to do that, fantastic. If you want to leave a review, fantastic as well. I don't really ask for reviews that much these days, but it's really helpful. And that's about it. Thank you so much for, you know, spending the last year going through Dark Histories with me. It's been quite a ride. We'll be back in 2019 with season three. If you've got any requests for season three, again, get them into me. If you've got any stories for the Christmas episode, get them into me. If you've got anything you want to say, get them into me. In fact, contact at darkhistories.com is the email. I don't really know what I'm saying. To be honest, I'm just really excited that we kind of finished the season and I'm just waffling. So, yeah, I'm going to end it there and just once again say thank you very much for this past year. I've enjoyed it so much making the podcast and I've enjoyed so much sharing it with all of you guys. So, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. I hope all the love, peace, happiness in the world for you and your families. Thanks very much. Sleep tight.